Well, good afternoon, everybody. I uh, hope everyone is well and uh, coping with uh, lockdown three. Um, I'm sure Netflix uh, and YouTube are getting a good uh, a good thrashing. Certainly, I hope of uh, aviation related uh, footage and, and videos and movies. I, for one, have been uh, going in overdrive for the last couple of days to research a most incredible guy uh, and uh, a name that uh, I think if anyone has any interest in aviation will have heard of. But before I uh, come on to this uh, legend of aviation, I just wanted to remind you all why we're here. Uh, these Inspirability Talks have now been running, would you believe, for almost uh, a year. Um, we are well over 20 uh, and uh, it's, I think, a position I feel quite fortunate to be in because I'm the one who gets to interview uh, these uh, greats of aviation. Uh, and we've spoken to pioneers, we've spoken to record breakers, uh, we've spoken to all sorts of pilots from all sorts of different backgrounds from around the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, we will continue to do that. And the reason we're doing this, of course, is to raise money for this wonderful charity, Aerobility. Now, these uh, webinars, podcasts, if you like, um, have really taken taken off, uh, metaphorically speaking. Um, we have uh, thousands and thousands of views now um, on these talks, and it's it's just brilliant because it's getting this charity out there. It's getting us heard. It's getting our name out there. And most importantly, it's getting us understood because we deliver a service to the disabled community in aviation, but beyond aviation as well. Anyone who feels they could realize their dreams, perhaps improve their lives, improve their outlook, can use aviation as a tool to do so. And we're going to hear a lot about that with somebody who shares those values uh, today. Now, you can uh, use this opportunity to donate uh, to Aerobility as well. So, Chad, hopefully on the bottom of the screen uh, soon, there we go, you can, uh, um, you, you can uh, donate a, a little or as much as you wish uh, to Aerobility this afternoon as you listen to to this talk uh, to underwrite our survival. Uh, the reason we did this was to, main, to, to maintain uh, the cash flow, to maintain the service that we deliver, this unique uh, service to the disabled community. So I hope you've got your tea or your beer or your wine and your pack of hobnobs ready because uh, today really is a treat. Um, the gentleman we're going to talk to today um, is the uh, one and only Kermit Weeks. Now, Kermit. Um, otherwise known as the Wizard of Orlampa. We're going to hear about why uh, he has that name in just a moment, but I'm going to uh, uh, take uh, the opportunity to uh, give you all a bit of a background uh, on Kermit. Some of you may not realize uh, where he's come from, what he's up to, but also where he's going. Um, and, uh, you know, he <clears throat> really is a guy that inspires so many people. And it's not just about the aviation. In fact, it's in his words, it's using aviation as a tool for people to realize their potential. And I mean, there can't be a better uh, parallel to what we do there. So we're going to hear a lot about that. Um, but Kermit is an aviation enthusiast and pilot, an aircraft builder and mechanic. Um, he owns the world's largest private collection of vintage and classic aircraft, over 140 aircraft. And uh, it's his uh, he says that, you know, it, an aircraft in that collection, he has either flown, does fly or will fly. And there's no aircraft in that collection that he doesn't hasn't planned to fly or hasn't flown already. So pretty impressive stuff. Kermit is um, a world class aerobatic champion uh, and he's um, he's also uh, an award winning author. Now, I have actually one of his books right here. Um, uh, Kermit signed this book for my daughter at the Oshkosh Air Show 
back in 2016. Uh, and there we go. There's the proof. So uh, if you've got kids out there, Kermit uh, is an award-winning author. He's published four books, and they really are very entertaining. Um, Kermit, uh, as I said, he's a, he's a designer. He's built, uh, designed and built two aircraft of his own, the Weeks Special and the Weeks Solution. And that took him very neatly into aerobatics. And uh, we may know Kermit for his Warbird uh, exploits and his classic collection. But actually, at the beginning, it all started uh, in the late 70s with uh, his aerobatic competition flying. And he was placed uh, world top three five times, won 20 medals in World Aerobatic Championship competitions over 15 years on the U.S. National Aerobatic Team uh, and uh, has won the U.S. Nationals twice. So uh, when we uh, meet Kermit, we'll start there. We'll start at the origin, how it happened, and then how it led into what he's up to today. Um, but uh, the collection grew and grew. Uh, the, the collection began in the 70s and 80s, and um, it originally resided in Miami, uh, but then moved to Polk City in Florida, just off the I-4, west towards Tampa. I'm sure many of you know it well, who've been to uh, Fantasy of Flight, which is uh, Kermit's home. Uh, and he probably spends more time there than he does at home. Uh, like we all do at the airfield at the weekends. Um, but we're going to hear a lot about that uh, historic collection and how he keeps those aircraft in the air. Um, but I want to finish with my introduction to Kermit about, you know, the recognition he's had for what he's doing for aviation around the world. As I said, you know, his reputation and stature across aviation is, is fantastic. His peers have recognized him many times. He's uh, had a lot of awards uh, and recognition for the work he does. So uh, without further ado, I would, um, I'm very privileged and honored to introduce Kermit. Hey, John, how's it going? How are you? I'm doing great. It's good to see you, Kermit. So what's, uh, what's it like out there? It's, it's like you're in your office in Florida, is that right? Yeah, sitting in the office, fantasy of flying, little gray skies today, so you guys would feel at home. Yes, we would. We would. I'm in my short sleeves, but uh, it's the central heating that's keeping me, uh, you know, in my short sleeves today. Not, not just the weather outside. So, so how's lockdown been? I mean, has you know, how's how's the house fantasy of flight? Have you had the chance to do much flying in the last few months? Um, I can fly if I want. Uh, we live in Florida. This is the land of the free. Um, you know, California is the land of the prison. But uh, we got a great governor. And, uh, you know, we're doing pretty well as far as the COVID stuff goes. And, uh, you know, it's pretty much life as normal. I mean, people wear masks and stuff. Some do, some don't. Um, and, uh, you know, I fly if I want to, but I've really been using the time to focus on uh, developing some things, doing some writing and some other projects. So uh, currently I've only got one airplane in license right now, my little S-39 Sikorsky, and it's a great go-to airplane for me because I can get it in out of the hangar easy. I can go take off and land in the water, land behind my house and taxi up, you know, and it's a, uh, give, a, give a ride or two if I need to. So it's uh, always at my disposal. Yeah, that's good. No, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of us that have been doing that, haven't they? You know, either, you know, getting in the hangar and just doing stuff to the aircraft that we haven't had the time to do or, or DIY. But, um, but look, um, Kermit, we've, we've got, a, we haven't got a lot of time and we've got a lot to pack in and, um, you know, very much looking forward to the story, uh, the life story, and then bringing it up to date. So I wanted to ask you, Kermit, uh, the question that's on most people's lips. How did it all begin and what inspired you to get into, into aviation? 
Um, well, it was interesting. I, there was nobody in my family that was directly connected with aviation. Um, it's been part of my past. I think people that follow me on my Facebook page realize uh, I've always had two parallel paths of interest. One of them is obvious everybody knows about, and that's the path uh, of a fascination with what I call outer flight, the airplanes flying aerobatics and stuff. But at the same time in my early years, I began to develop an interest of what I call inner flight. And when I was reading books early on about airplanes and history and aces and that kind of stuff, you know, I was reading books about paranormal psychic phenomena, ESP, parapsychology, eventually metaphysics and spirituality. And these two parallel paths followed me through my life and had nothing to do with each other until after Fantasy of Flight opened several years. And it was at that point I realized that, uh, you know, what I was here to do and partly, you know, what my mission here is. And there's a bit of a woo-woo side to me I've alluded to, and I haven't really talked about it a lot, but beginning to come out of my metaphysical closet, so to speak. And uh, flight has been very much a part of my past, and I'm talking way past. Uh, I have had the opportunity. I've never done any drugs in my life, so let me get that off the table. Never smoked pot, nothing. And uh, there was a reason for that because nobody would believe my stories uh, when they begin to come out. And I've had a chance to uh, explore other realities. I connect with other realities. I went to a place called the Monroe Institute where they use a sound technology to get you to go within and explore your own consciousness. And I've had some very, very interesting uh, metaphysical type things. And in the process of that, I've learned about my past. So I've actually come from uh, in the human form. This is my fourth lifetime in aviation. I built gas balloons outside of Paris in the early 1800s. I flew for the Germans in the First World War. I flew P-51s for the Americans in the Second World War. This is number four. But I've also seen past lives in other life forms, test flying starfighters and on other planets and way, way in the past. So this has just been part of my spiritual DNA since I began, not only the outer, but the inner as well. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And <clears throat> I think yeah, we're all, all on a journey, aren't we? You know, a journey of discovery. And, and my goodness, you know, aviation has brought, um, brought me out of myself, you know, uh, discovered my inner soul and you know, it's quite a, it, it lays your character and your soul quite bare, doesn't it? You know, in the aircraft, it's just you and the machine and, you know, you, uh, it, it's, it's a great leveler as well. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, but there's not that many people who started as early as you did. I mean, uh, tell us a story about, um, you know, it, it seems like you've always had a spanner and a hammer in your hand at some point in your life. Um, and it was only a matter of time before you, you put that to the design of an aircraft. Tell us a story there about your early designs. Well, it was interesting. When I was a kid, I was always fascinated with dreaming and designing and building. And when we would learn something about school, like the Pueblo Indians, I would go build a, a mud fort. Or we'd learn about, you know, I, I mean, my first airplane I built, there's a picture somewhere of a little biplane. I was eight years old. And the the, the landing gear design was a bit beyond my technical ability at the time. So I improvised and I put it on top of my little radio flyer wagon and I'd go down the street dream because we had a little bit of a hill there dreaming about flying, you know. 
And so, and I, I mean, but it was not just flight. It was, that was one aspect. I remember designing a submarine when I was probably like 10 or something like that. That's my first airplane right there when I was eight. That's building my airplane when I was uh, uh, 18. But basically, um, you know, I had a little submarine design and I knew that it had to be buoyant to a certain degree. And so I had it weighted down. And the way I could go up and down was to have it a little bit heavy. And I had some bicycle tires, you know, like inner tubes from a car on the outside. And I had a bicycle pump inside the submarine. (laughs) I could go up and down. So I was thinking about like that stuff early on. But I basically started flying uh, uh, control line airplanes in my early teens. That evolved into radio control when I was in 10th grade. Eventually uh, uh, started uh, learning to fly when I was uh, 16 and bought a set of plans uh, for an airplane uh, that I built most of before I graduated from high school, before I turned 18. Uh, I went on to test fly the airplane when I was 22. And, uh, you know, it was downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, um, I remember in my flying, you know, I, I learned to fly. I, I got the bug. And then, then, I had to, then I had a choice. You know, I, I could get my twin rating CPL, go, go down that road or go down the, the fun road. I, I chose the fun road like you did. Yeah. Um, and, and aerobatics has to be the, the discipline that, that just – you know, polishes your airmanship, your handling, your your knowledge of yourself and the machine, and and obviously getting to the level you did, you you really must have, uh, you know, put the time in, you know, and and obviously, uh, you know, f- could fall back on your engineering knowledge as well. I mean, h- how did the aerobatic flying begin? Well, it was interesting. Um, I like I said, this flight aspect has been part of my spiritual DNA. Um, I, I started to learn how to fly when I was 16. Back then, they used to have a Cessna $5 coupon in Flying Magazine. You clipped it out, and you could do an introductory ride for $5, okay? I did that, and my first official lesson, my instructor was showing me spins, okay? It was like de- destined to be. I was in my, uh, uh, on my high school gymnastic team. And uh, I was used to flipping around in the gym. So I immediately gravitated. It felt natural flipping around in the sky. And, uh, you know, there was an aerobatic school on the, on the uh, airport. And eventually, you know, I started taking some basic aerobatic lessons. And uh, basically, uh, actually, no, actually, I, I taught myself aerobatics. So I had done two loops and two snap rolls in a Stearman with somebody. And I knew how to do spins in a Cessna 150 and stuff. But uh, basically, um, I ended up, uh, uh, I got checked out in a Cetabria, which is aerobatic spelled backwards, okay? And a friend of mine, you know, had gotten checked out before I did. And I said, hey, you want to learn how to do aerobatics? So I showed him how to do loops and I kind of do rolls, you know, just barrel rolls and stuff and snap rolls and spins. And, and I'd never done a hammerhead in my life before. I said, yeah, let's try a hammerhead. And we pull up and kick the rudder and kind of wallowed around, you know. So we taught ourselves and I'd, I'd 
lay upside down on the couch because when you're upside down, the controls reverse because the, the rudder and the ailerons are, are, you know, if you think about it right side up, think about it upside down. So I'd lay on the back of my couch and pretend I was doing inverted turns and eventually started doing inverted turns in an airplane that had no inverted system. So as soon as you got to here, the engine quit and it wouldn't start again until you got back around. So you really had to learn, you know, how not to dish out. So it was uh, fascinating. This was the 1982 World Aerobatic Championships in Spitzerberg, and I won the gold medal in this flight that's being shown right here. That's uh, my weak solution. So yeah. I actually got into aerobatics, and uh, you know, I had a, a bit of a formal education never really agreed with me, but I've been a life learner, and I dropped out of three schools. The last one and the most prestigious was Purdue University. And I had started my freshman year over again in aeronautical, aeronautical engineering, and it just wasn't happening. And I said, forget this. There were some other things that happened. And it was part of my life plan. I realized that now I was not destined to do formal education. So I had no formal training in aeronautical engineering. I left Purdue. I By this time, I had a S2A pits that I was competing in advance. I went home. I rented a shop space, went out and bought a Heliarc welder, taught myself how to Heliarc weld, and designed the week special. And in that airplane, I made the U.S. aerobatic team when I was 24 years old. Uh, it had the biggest engine propeller combination that anybody put in an aerobatic airplane that size. You know, Curtis Spitz was working on one as well, and he lived 20 miles from me, so he was a friend. And um, I went to my first World Aerobatic Championship in 78 in Czechoslovakia, a complete unknown, 61 competitors, 18 countries. I got three silvers and a bronze and ended up second overall in the world. And I'm like, well, this is pretty cool. So finding <laughs> the weak solution on the airplane as we were going home, and instead of going to the next engine, which was a 260 horsepower airplane, that's the weak special. I jumped and I went to the 300 horse and I came up with the Weeks solution, which is the black airplane. And, uh, you know, these went through different iterations. The Weeks special had two separate uh, wings that I had tried. The Weeks solution, uh, I flew in four or five world championships and including all the cross country time around Europe to Canada, to Oshkosh, practices, all the contests I went to, and all the practice time was only 650 hours total time. Mm. So I just, I was just naturally a pilot. And I would always, it was very interesting. I always thought like I was the director of a film and where people would, because in the cockpit, you use the references of the airplane to be perfectly vertical. Because you know, air show flying is like being at the circus. Competition flying is like a gymnastic meet. You're being graded on the precision. And while everybody at a world championship does do all the maneuvers and the sequences, there's a big difference between the quality of the guy that's first and the guy that's last. And so I always would not only use the ability in the airplane to see it, but I would think of what the judges were seeing. And there were times when I knew the judges, like if I'm about to go out of the box, the wind's blowing me out to get a penalty point. The judge couldn't tell if I was vertical or not. I would cock the airplane down. I'd stay in the box. Everybody else would go out. So I was thinking, what are the judges seeing 
not what am I seeing inside the airplane. And I think that was another uh, ability that I had to be able to perceive what the judges were looking at. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really fascinating because, you know, in, in, <clears throat> it, it's always a, uh, it's always said, isn't it, that you know, if you're if you're an air show pilot, the best schooling is to be, you know, ha having gone through the com the competition aerobatic route, um, because you understand so many of those basic rules, and of course, it polishes your flying. and And I think for competition aerobatics, you know, it's it's um, you know, it, again, you know, a, a bit like being on your own in a single seater. Everything's laid bare, isn't it? You know, you can't hide. Um, and what was it like to sort of um, you know, way up the field around you because uh, I know the Russians really kind of hit world at a, at a world level. The Russians really started going for it in the 80s with the Yak 50. They designed that aircraft to, to ultimately win the world championship. So, so who, who were the dominating nations when you started and, and where did you leave it? You know, and then before you went on to your next chapter, yeah, it, it was fascinating. It was interesting because the Russian pilots that was basically their job. They were aerobatic instructors, and they basically, that was their job. When they flew on the team, that was part of their job. Everybody on the U.S. team, man, we were just weekend warriors. It was a hobby, modifying and building our own airplanes and blah, blah, blah. And it was really a fantastic expression of the different cultures. Okay, and I remember in Czechoslovakia, my first world championship, there was a group that came down from, uh, they were like the equivalent of the Czechoslovakian NASA. And they came down and they singled me out because I was doing fairly well. And uh, I ended up second uh, behind a, ch a Czech. Uh, and basically, uh, you know, they, they interviewed me through an interpreter. And they said it was one of the coolest things to express myself of the freedom that we have in America. Hmm. And they said, well, basically, you know, uh, you know, how, how, we understand you designed and built the airplane. And I said, yeah. And they said, well, you know, what was your, uh, did, you know, you got an aeronautical engine degree, blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, actually, I dropped out of school. And it was pretty much eyeball engineering. And I knew what worked from other airplane designs. And I knew what, so I knew what was weaker and what was stronger. And if I got into, and I know it was only, there was, there was no, reason, I never asked a question on the design of the week special, but I did ask two engineering questions to somebody that I knew I was beyond my element to give me a tubing size by extending my engine matter or something. So the first thing was, where are you going to an aeronautical engineer? No, I dropped out of school. The second was, well, we heard that you built this. Yeah, I'll buy. I built it, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, yeah. And they said, well, you know, so you're a certified welder. I said, well, no, actually, I taught myself how to weld, you know, and I gas rigged it and I read about it and I knew you had penetration and I cut it and I'd look at it and make sure it was okay. And finally, you know, I welded up a T and I beat the crap out of it. And when the tube broke before the weld did, I declared myself a welder and I finished <laughs> my first airplane, you know. And then the next one, they said, well, is there, you know, how did you do the design? You know, did you do this in a wind tunnel? And I just looked at him, I pointed up, and I said, the sky is my wind tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> I felt so good. And these guys were looking at me like, I'm just a kid. I'm 24 years, 25 years old at that point. So, okay. Yeah, just strap it on your back and just go. Just try. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. one of the things about competition aerobatic flying is you learn the limits of not only the airplane, but yourself. 
And, and this applies to life. This is a great metaphor for life because, you know, obviously with the G-forces and stuff, you have to know you're tightening up your stomach. If you do a bunch of negative stuff and, and then all of a sudden it's followed by something that's, uh, you know, a hard positive maneuver, you've got the chance of blacking out. I blacked out one time and I woke up headed at the ground at about a 30 degree angle at 800 feet. And I've known other people that have blacked out and uh, you know, and you just, you, so you got to know your own physical thing. And it used to take us, if you hadn't done aerobatics in a while, it took me an unlimited about three days to get my G tolerance back. And you know, you see the guys on the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds. Yeah, they got G. Well, the I don't think the Blue Angels do, but the you know they've got G suits, but they're not doing any negative stuff. You know, anything we did positive, we did negative as well. And yeah. transition from negative to positive can mess you up in a hurry. And so, uh, but the other thing is, is knowing the limits of what the airplane has and the controls you have to make it do what you want to do. One of the things that happens is there's an airplane called a Humpty Bump where you're going vertical and you pull around this way, okay? Basically, you go up and then you pull around like an inside loop, okay? Well, the airplane wants to do that easily, but when you're going around the other way, the airplane and the torque are working opposite, and as you're running out of speed and you've run out of aileron and the wing starts dropping, you got to start using the throttle to come back to keep the wings level. So you've got to know what the limits and what controls you've got to do. And so I see that as a metaphor for life. What do you have as a way of talents and skills? What can you do to get more out of them? And what are your personal limitations that you can expand your potential on, you know? So uh, to mm -hmm. me, aerobatic flying was the epitome of the expression of the metaphor of flight in this five sense, three-dimensional reality. Um, so I think that was part of the reason why I was drawn to it. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, like you said, you know, I flew five or six world championships, won 20 medals. And at some point, uh, I mean, the, the, big, the big deal was uh, there was a big fork in my path of life, and that was Hurricane Andrew. I had just come back from what became my last world championship in France, which was a no contest because the weather. Uh, they only had one flight, so they didn't declare world champion. And uh, I came back, uh, flew the air show at Oshkosh, landed. The next weekend, Hurricane Andrew came through, collapsed my whole museum, crushed my airplanes, and neither one of them has been rebuilt. And I knew at that point I was done with aerobatics. And literally four months later, after four years of working, they handed me my uh, permit to build Fantasy of Flight. And life was saying, it's time to get out of Miami. Let's go to Central Florida and focus on uh, Fantasy of Flight. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes life whacks us upside the head really hard. And that's called a clue by four. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, that's that's really interesting. And, and just to... Just to talk about the, um, you know, the G tolerance and the human factors. Um, you may have heard of the very famous um, wartime pilot in the UK, uh, Douglas Bader, who had his legs amputated before the war and then became, um, you know, a famous uh, pilot flying the Spitfire. Um, and um, we, we know we know the family of Douglas, and um, it's very interesting because NASA were keen to understand his tolerance on G because, of course, uh, he didn't have lower limbs. Uh, 
where the blood could pool and, and affect, you know, um, his consciousness. So, yeah, that, that whole topic is really quite fascinating. And of course, everyone's different. Everyone's made differently and reacts differently in the cockpit. And uh, I'm sure that has advantages and disadvantages as well. But um, but just as, as you've neatly taken us into the next chapter of, of your of your life, Kermit, you know, you, you left aerobatics behind, but clearly set you up perfectly in terms of, uh, you know, flying these wonderful machines that you now own and operate. So you had obviously began collecting uh, vintage uh, and, and classic aircraft. Tell us, tell us about the early days, you know, obviously, uh, at some point, there had to be a place for you to put them all, which was Miami. So what? tell us about the early days. Well, it was interesting. Um, while while the, 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 the flight thing was happening on this parallel path, the metaphysical one was also uh, going on, and they were beginning to interact. Um, I mean, in my early 20s, I started having conscious out-of-body experiences, and this happened for about three decades. But... Uh, it was it was interesting. I began when I was digging out from the rubble of Hurricane Andrew. I was beginning to sense something was guiding me. Okay, and it was I never got a blinding flash of light, but over the years I've developed this sense. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but basically I developed this connection, and I was trained at some level to learn how to connect with other aspects of self or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And what I've learned to do is, and I didn't realize at the time, but for the first half of my life, I was being nurtured along on my path and I didn't realize it. It's almost like at this level of a reality, we're puppets. And at the puppet level, we don't have a clue what's coming down the pike, okay? But there's this other aspect of us that's the puppeteer from a metaphorical point of view. And, you know, one of the ways synchronicity works is the puppeteers talk behind the scenes. Maybe that's why we're having this conversation and three months ago we didn't know we were going to have it. Okay, so that's one of the ways synchronicity works. But also what happens, what I've learned over the time and what developed and I was trained to do is once you learn to connect through the strings, you become a unit and go through this life, whether it's to in through intuition, a sense of knowing everyone has to discover how they can utilize that for their own purpose. But at some level, it's just you. OK, you're not surrendering to anything other than just you from what I've been shown and whatever. There's different aspects of you or whatever. So basically, you get to go through this reality like Avatar as a human yeah. mission control. And what, what happens is, is really anything outside of that is potential ego land, okay? I dropped ego so long ago, and I just now, and one of the things that's, that's, that's happened that, uh, you know, I basically... Uh, we all channel at some level when ideas spontaneously come into our You know, it's the puppeteers dropping ideas and blah, 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 or wh whatever you want to call it. But I've developed it to the point to where I, I, I channel every day. I'm literally talking to my friends, okay? I use them for business decisions. I've gone over past history. I, 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 it's phenomenal. And what I didn't, what became so obvious in my story, and I know there's people that can't relate to this, but there are people that do, but we can all relate to, you know, you know, going to pick up the phone and you kind of know who it is before you, you get it. It's little things like that. 
And we all have the ability, even though we live in a five sense reality, we all have the ability to tap into that sixth sense, if you will. And, uh, you know, I've just learned to live that way. And, you know, I'll, the only thing I'll say, uh, I was going to save it to the end and I'll save it to the end, but I want to repeat it now, uh, is the fact that the only thing I would recommend that anybody consider doing is number one, be true to yourself. Okay. Listen to others and listen to peer pressure and blah, blah, blah. But number one, always be true to yourself. And number two, and this is key to what Fantasy of Flight's all about, is follow those energies that lead you beyond yourself. Because at some level, what I was shown and what I realize now is that aspect that's leading you beyond yourself is just you saying, come this way. Okay. Yeah. So learn to connect through the strings in whatever way that means to you and play with it. You may, you may make mistakes. You may... Uh, you know, stumble here and there, but you learn from those things and get it to work for you. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating stuff. And you know, what pops into my mind, Kermit, is is you know, um, dreams, ambition, hope. You know, particularly in times like these, you know, it does make us think about the finer things, the things we want but we can't have. And and uh, I, I do agree. I think um, you know, again, using using aviation as that as that pathway. Um, a lot of us have probably realized dreams, uh, but we can also make new ones, you know, and, and I, I think for the guys and girls in their ability, uh, that's really important. Uh, and, and I think with with um, with the lockdowns that have happened recently, um, the other, uh, you know, part of society, the part of society that doesn't have to deal with disability uh, or loneliness has actually understood what it means, you know, um, because disability can be a lonely, isolating experience. Um, and so I, I, I do feel that your your comments are really justified in particularly in these times. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's uh, really quite interesting to hear you talk about that um, in, in terms of the, um, uh, the fantasy of flight. Um, now, everything is uh, you've just described starts with a, an idea, a dream, an ambition. And and um, did you ever believe you would have this um, this business, this collection, this this wonderful thing to share? Because what well, one thing that's loud and clear for me, Kermit, is is the fact that you you do have this collection, but it's it almost feels like it's your um, you know your number one priority is to share it with other people, you know, to allow people to have that experience that you want to offer at Fantasy of Flight to improve their lives. And, and again, just like AirAbility, you're using that as a tool for their, you know, for, to, 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 to support their, their dreams and ambitions. And, and I, I can vouch for the, uh, the Fantasy of Flight experience. I, I visited there myself uh, and, and it is pretty profound. It's an awesome place to go. But tell us about that vision you had and when did it start? Well, it was interesting when I, if, if my friends had told me what I would be doing in the future back then, I would have thrown my hands up and said, there's no way, there's no way. And so what they've done, and hopefully everyone's guidance or whatever you want, they'll only give you what you need and they'll bring you slowly, slowly this way. And all of a sudden I find myself down the road, like, 
oh my God. I mean, I live so far outside the fringes of most people's reality that I just, I, I have to pinch myself at times. So it was, a. I didn't realize I was following the energies because at that time early on, I was being nurtured along on my path. But eventually I began, and it wasn't a blinding flash of light, it was going slowly over a hump. And I began to realize it was happening. And eventually I began to learn to connect in ways that became very, very manifest and, uh, you know, became more of a way of life. And that's developed. Uh, and now I, I literally, I sit down every day and I'm talking to my friends and, and I get all sorts of fascinating information. Um, and so, so what happened was the collection, like I said, the collection is just an aspect of Kermit Weeks. It's not my whole life. And what's going to happen here is, is part of what I'm creating and I've been led to create is to stand on Walt Disney's shoulders and what he left me, okay, and literally created an entirely new industry. If you go back and bear with me, I would, uh, I would uh, put on the table that imagine the traveling gypsy bands going around entertaining, blah, 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 okay? Well, at some point, that evolves into a giant Barnum and Bailey Ringling Brothers circus, okay? And now that's the greatest freaking thing that's happening. But the circus like, came to town so many times, and then people started thinking, well, what can we do to where we can you know, have something all the time? And so out of the evolution of the circus came the amusement park industry, Coney Island, Palisades Park. Okay, Now we got Ferris wheels, wooden roller coasters, tunnel of love, bumper cars. Okay. And, you know, all sorts of games and stuff. So that became the next industry. And by the way, the circus is now defunct after 146 years. There's cycles in every industry. And basically, in 1955, Walt was at the amusement park uh, convention in Chicago. He laid out his plans for Disneyland. They all said he's crazy. You're going to lose your tail. They're either irrelevant or they're out of business. Okay. Well, you're seeing the beginning of the demise of the existing industry that Walt started and pendulum swing in society. You have to understand what Walt's segue was. Walt's segue was in America. We had just come out of World War II and Korea, and we didn't have to deal with the aftermath of the cleanup. We came home to our time. The women were in the workforce, 2.3 kids. We got a great interstate system to take our campers around Americans and not look at devastation. And it was leave it to beaver time. That was Walt's segue. And so Mickey Mouse, wow, and all this stuff, we were looking to escape from reality. Well, now reality is staring us in the face and we're going to have to deal with it, okay? So what I'm going to do is stand on Walt's shoulders and create the next industry. But it's not about entertainment as an end product. It's using entertainment as a means. Well, I think you may have lost Kermit there. Yeah, yeah one second. I'm almost there. Okay, no problem. Okay, guess, guess what happens when you don't plug your computer in and you lose oh. your <laughs> all my power got like zero that went on the battery and I apologize for that. No, not at all, not at all. No, you, you were telling us you were telling us about the the next step for, for your you know bringing people through. So basically, imagine the existing industry 
uses entertainment as a means to entertain you, and they basically focus on external spectacularism, okay, which is uh, which is great. It's fun. Oh my God! It's they've developed it to the nth degree using amazing technology and stuff. What I want to do is I want to create something instead of uh, you know, you're on a roller coaster with 49 other people and it's a five minute whoopie do experience. And like, oh, let's get back in line again. Where's the next one? Because you eat it like popcorn. What yeah. I want to do is I want to create things to use entertainment as a means to an end to your own self discovery and self transformation. You walk into my theme park, one person, there's a sign outside that says, warning, once you step beyond these gates, you may not leave the same person, okay? You basically go in. We don't tell you anything. We, everything we have is common to the human experience. There's no value system. Doing something new, accepting limitations that others place upon you, things like that. We'll use aviation stories to deliver that that were real because everything I'm going to deliver is based on things that are real, where I would say the existing industry basically is not. Okay. Yeah. And so our mission statement is to light that spark within, which is you bringing what you truly are into this reality of light and expressing it in your own unique way. You change yourself inside. You leave a different person and nobody knows what went on. If I can deliver that, I'm onto something really, really big. And I think you're going to see the planet is going to be ready for something like that. Uh, you're going to be seeing uh, a little bit of the waning of the existing industry. And I think when I finally come out with this, everybody's going to go, oh, my God, this is so obvious. Why didn't somebody think of this? And the world's going to be ready for it. So, so instead mm -hmm. of, you know, going to the current theme park industry and being a hero in their intellectual property. I want you to come to fantasy of flight. There's a reverse deal as a wellspring source of your own self inspiration. And when you leave, there's going to be a sign that says, and for anybody that's been a fantasy of flight, you've always noticed why my welcome mats face out the door. It's always been that way since day one, you're going to see a sign that says welcoming you, to becoming the greatest hero you can be in the greatest story you can ever participate in. Wow. Well, Whatever that means to you. Yeah, no, that, that, that sounds really exciting, Kim. It, it, it really does. And that sounds like um, something that, um, you know, we'll, we'll learn more about in, in the coming months uh, and, and years as, as you, you know, as you bring that to reality for people to actually experience. So I'm um, very, very excited to hear about that. And I can, I can tell you, and John, can, John, just just really quickly, um, you know, for the the airplane enthusiast, I'm going to create something that is going to blow away the airplane enthusiast. Nobody is going to do what I'm going to do, so they are going to be very very happy. Uh, you're still going to see airplanes, still going to fly, blah blah rides and things like that. But it's going to be delivered in a way that the general public is going to come. And they're going to go, oh, my God, this is the greatest freaking product since sliced bread. Oh, and by the way, those airplanes are actually pretty cool. So I'm kind of creating a win-win situation where the non-aviation enthusiast is going to leave with a better uh, and a broader 
you know, appreciation for what aviation can mean metaphorically. Yeah. And potentially, like I said, instead of this many people like an old airplanes, maybe we get a, a smaller piece of the biggest freaking pie, which is seven and a half billion people. Yeah. 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 Wow. Wow. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to hear more. That, that sounds really, really fascinating. And, and Mike and I were just about to burst into conversation about our views on our uh, experience at Fantasy of Flight. So I, I think I said to you a couple of days ago, Kermit, you know, I, um, I asked my wife to marry me two days before I visited Fantasy of Flight. And she's still here. Uh, and then um, <laughs> I hope that wasn't the honeymoon. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Well, I I would have loved to have made it my honeymoon, and I and I purchased this in the gift shop. Um, right. And uh, I I highly recommend it to everybody listening. Um, I four head west towards Tampa, and do not do not pass Fantasy of Flight because if you do, you'll be very disappointed. Um, but uh, if if I could focus a little bit, um, you talked about the enthusiasts and, and the, the airheads. Um, so, I, you know, where do we start? Um, I'm not going to ask your favorite airplane. I'm not going to ask you the one that you'll sell last if you had to. Um, but can you, for those of us watching who haven't been to Fantasy of Flight, Kermit, from an a aircraft perspective, you know, when you walk in, what do you see? I mean, you, you, if I'm not mistaken, your earliest aircraft is 1913. Your most recent aircraft is a 1956. You've got 140 plus aircraft in the collection, all of which uh, have either flown, do fly, or will be flying. You you must have a team of restorers and mechanics. You know, I mean, just put us in there. Put us yeah. in there. In the life of. Well, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, I was my first employee, and I was my first mechanic, and uh, you know, built and all that stuff. And at the the, the Weeks Air Museum, uh, for people that haven't looked at some of my, and please everybody, check out KermitWeeks.com. I got a YouTube channel that's got tons of great, cool videos checking out in World War One airplanes and P fifty ones and stuff. I've also got a Facebook deal, but uh, basically. What I realized was, and I use as a metaphor, all great stories come in three acts, okay? And, and the Weeks Air Museum in Miami opened in 1985, and that was at the beginning of Act One, and it closed with Hurricane Andrew, August 24th, mm -hmm. 1992. Fantasy of Flight opened in 1995, so like uh, three years later, and uh, that was basically Act Two. I closed Act Two in 2014. So the, the facility that you would have come to with the restaurant and the art deco and all that stuff, that is currently closed to the public. I lost my butt for so 18 and a half years, and we tried for a year by cutting costs down, cutting the staff down, cutting our hours down. And about nine months into that year, the writing was on the wall, and I said, look, I need to shut this down. I would rather take the money I'm losing, which was a lot, and put it towards the development of what I now understand I'm supposed to be creating. So I shut the doors in 2014, but then a year later I realized, you know, hey guys, I still have a lot of trademarks. I've got uh, a sign out on the interstate that I don't really want to lose. That's the office I'm sitting in right now, <laughs> a little bit beyond the top. But, uh, and there's a story behind it. But basically, 
um, I needed to have a gift shop open to maintain my trademark status uh, because I've got all these trademarks that I've got for the future concept. So we opened, we had a little hanger across the way. So right now I've got a little boring museum light that's signs, ropes, a few kiosks. I am ashamed of what I've got open. <laughs> you got to realize the, the facility that was the original fantasy of flight was only originally ever designed to be my shop. This is Fantasy of Flight, the original facility where my office and the two hangars and the restaurant were and two other buildings and eventually a, a, a third one, <coughs> a fourth one, is going to be literally my dream restoration and maintenance facility. Okay, so we've shut down that. We're turning, like this hangar is going to be my restoration hangar. And, uh, you know, we're turning this eventually into the dream shop restoration thing. And where people used to come in the arched gate entrance, which was always the entrance, there's a big open field. Why, why was the entrance always there? Because that open field is what I've always intended, where I've intended Fantasy of Flight to be. And so that, what I'm telling everybody is Act 2 closed in 2014. Oh, yeah, we got this little museum light thing, whatever. You know, you can see a few airplanes, and it's really to keep the aviation enthusiasts happy a little bit. But in reality, it wouldn't be open, except I got to have my gift shop open to maintain my trademarks. And we've been working on the design and development of Act 3. Uh, and I'm telling everybody, go take a bathroom break, get a hot dog and a Coke. Act 3 is going to be in at some point. And I know I get some people out there on my Facebook page say, ah, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Well, they've obviously given up on it, but I can assure you I have not. I've been working on this for a very long time. I've got a lot invested in this. It's not just the airplanes. There's a long-term goal and dream of which the airplanes and stuff are a part of. And, yeah, yeah I own 140 airplanes. But there's also a not-for-profit that owns about two dozen airplanes, most of which I've donated. So there's over 165 airplanes in the collection. And at some point, I see once I can create a product, a viable product that can generate income, that part of that income goes towards the collection. All of the collection is going to end up in the not-for-profit. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And, you know, Kermit, I know you're well known for your philanthropic um uh you know work and and um making sure that uh aviation touches those that um otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity and i really look forward to seeing that and um you know um one one thing in in terms of the the real estate one thing i gotta get out of the open right now why all amper it's fascinating and and i i tell you what put put the license plate back up there for a second yep okay I've trademarked stuff over the years, and I realized I needed a trademark for Fantasy of Flight, and I trademarked my tagline, an attraction on a higher plane, way, way years before I understood what it meant. It's a, it's a, it's a play on words. Yeah. Not only is it a tourist attraction on a higher airplane, in other words, a higher standard within the industry, but it's literally you saying come this way. It's your higher self leading you beyond yourself. And, and you, you put that down now, but basically how, where the Orlampa thing came into, I when I left Miami looking for property, before I ever opened the Weeks Air Museum in 1985, I was looking for 
property in Central Florida because I realized, oh my God, I outgrew the collection before I ever opened the doors. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not going to go through five years of permitting with an with an airport authority, and I don't even own the building. I need to go to Central Florida where the tourist industry is. So I started looking for land, and I had three uh, requirements, which I didn't real at the, realize at the time, but my friends had dumped into my head. The first one was I needed great tourist access, which I've got, okay? The second one was a 5,000-foot runway to get my heavier and faster airplanes in. And the third thing was water access to fly vintage seaplanes in their natural environment. I know of no museum on the planet where they have a vintage airplane museum and they fly seaplanes. Yeah. And so, yeah, so this view right there is actually looking from potentially what's going to be the top of a control tower. And I'm explaining that area down behind me there. And the seaplane base will be behind me there with a the lake. Yeah, well, that's the end of my short runway. But that whole open area there is basically where Act Three is going to be, and that's what we're working on the design now. So I forgot where I was. Um, well, oh, we, yeah. we, okay. So, so our Lampa. So, yeah. I didn't realize it, but I realized at some point I was exactly forty minutes to the doorstep of the Tampa and the Orlando airport. Okay. And it was interesting. I purchased a piece of property for something told me to collect some property. I've been collecting property myself for 30 years now, okay? And people don't really realize how much property I've got, but I've got more than what Universal started with when they originally started in Orlando, okay? And uh, it's going to blow some people away at some point uh, with, the, with the potential. It's potential, you know, but I've, we're, we've master planned kind of the bigger picture. Um, and so the Orlampa deal, when we bought this piece of property, I thought, well, yeah, you know, we could put, put, it was kind of over on the corner where you got off and I'm going, yeah, we could put a McDonald's in and make a bunch of money in short term, this and that. And by this time, you know, I'm talking to my friends and they said, yeah, well, you could do that. But, you know, there might be some reason why you want to, you know, save it for later or something. You know, they never tell me what to do. They always lay out options and I follow those energies and I've never been wrong. And it was interesting, the realtor, we were talking about this, he said, what we ought to do is we ought to come up with a name that defines the location. And my focus went like that. And I want to explain a little bit of a metaphor here for people to, to begin to learn to trust this connecting through the strings deal. John, if you and I walk into a party and there's 100 people there and 50 conversations, Conversations. When we walk into that party, it's just white noise. Okay. It's just white noise. Well, guess what? Life is white noise. We listen to everything. So, what are we supposed to listen to? Okay. And this is the effect that you're looking for. That I know you've, everyone out there has had this experience, but begin to focus and work on this because it's just you saying, come this way. You and I are standing there. We're thinking, you know, who do I know here? Where's the bar? Where's the bathroom? Whatever. And all of a sudden, somebody on the far side of the room mentions John. Your focus goes, whoo, doesn't even phase me. It's not in my world. You're in phase with that. You're in resonance with that. And when things happen spontaneously and you go, it's life 
getting saying, pay attention to this, okay? So each of that you out there, begin to play with this and learn how to work with it because it's just you working with you. So with your Lampa deal, I thought about that and my focus was like, why am I supposed to pay attention to that? Eventually it evolved into Orlampa, okay? Which is exactly halfway between Tampa and Orlando. It just happens to be seven letters. And I did not discover, I trademarked it for theme park services, land development, blah, 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 clothing and stuff. A long time ago, coined the phrase, I didn't realize till later, and I'm not going to get into it now, there is so much meaning in that, that word that it blew me away later, and it ties in with the same thing like an attraction on a higher plane. When I trademarked it, it was given to me, but I didn't understand what it meant until five or six years later. And it was the same thing with Orlampa. This whole fantasy applied fried project, including the mission statement and everything, was eventually, it was just given to me, I say from my friends or whatever, but it's coming from somewhere and it keeps working for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's incredible. And, and you know, I, um, I think that in terms of location and accessibility, uh, it doesn't get much better, uh, um, you know, in, in, in terms of getting in by air or by by road. And, and um, you know, I think uh, you've, you've absolutely got to follow your, you know, where the direction you need to go. And, and um, in terms of the in terms of the aircraft that are there, um, I know you and I had a brief chat before we went live. And, um, you know, I uh, I think we'll be here till Friday afternoon if we speak about every single one of your airplanes. But We've got a um, <clears throat> we've got an audience here who are, I would say, pretty clued up on aviation. You know, yeah. um, they they know what a spark plug is and what a carburetor is. So so let's give it a go. Yeah. Um, now I have got a bone to pick with you, Kermit. You sure. you you uh, you uh, I know you love British aeroplanes, but in I think was it '94 uh, you you bought the Sunderland, but uh, but that's okay because you kept it flying. I'm sure. I'm sure if it stayed in the UK, it, it probably would have not uh, ended up flying and stayed in a museum somewhere. So tell us the story about that aircraft and, and what attracted you to it. How did you get it over to the US and, and what's it doing now? Well, it, you know, I mean, I, I, I feel for the, the people that felt that it should have stayed there. But you got to realize, I mean, I was at a disadvantage. I buy an airplane that's in a different country. I've got to get a flying. I got to risk getting it across, blah, 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 blah. And... I, uh, you know, so, I mean, I feel, but, but at some point I hope to, uh, you know, uh, we're going to do a, a Pan Am recreation of a 1930 Pan Am clipper base down on the water. This will be kind of the main star. All the seaplanes are going to be down there with an art deco restaurant and all that kind of stuff. So I think in the long run, it'll be a great place for people to come. And yeah, we flew it across. I, I flew it two air shows at Oshkosh and, uh, you know, eventually brought it down here. Uh, I had to leave it in the lake for a year because I was still working on the permitting to get my seaplane ramp out. And we finally did. And actually, uh, one of the hangars I actually designed to fit the airplane in because the top of the propellers determined the height of my hangar doors. And the vertical fin, I had to get in the hangar, which was above the hangar doors. I've got a little roll-up door that goes in there specifically to get the tail of the Sunderland in. So, you know, while I was following energies, you know, and I was drawn to it, you know, at some point, yeah, it's a cool airplane. But if you think about it, it's really an albatross around your neck at some point. 
yeah. Edward Holton had it. I mean, he never was a, a, a flyer or pilot that, to my knowledge, you know, but he enjoyed having it. You know, he, he spent a lot of his inheritance, you know, keeping it going or whatever. But at some point it's like, you know, you got to put it in and out of the water is a big issue. You know, if it's in the salt, like, you know, they had it down on the Solent, Southampton, uh, that, you know, that becomes an issue. And, and when it's in the water, let me tell you, that is like having a baby in a forest of wild animals. You got people trying to break in this, are the float switches still working? Are the batteries still charged? Is it leaking? You know, you got storms, we got hurricanes here. I mean, it, if you're not going to use it uh, a lot, then you're better off storing it. I'm the first person. I've stored this airplane inside more than anybody in its life. Okay. Right. And, and so, you know, Edward had it, I think, on the Thames or somewhere, Chatham or somewhere. He, somewhere he had it in a hangar for a while. Uh, but they got damaged in a windstorm and they had to fix the wing and stuff, you know. So, it's a big, expensive endeavor, and I built the largest free-span structure in the county that I live in to fit this airplane in. I mean, it'll also the hangar also fit a B-29, but the the B-29 was the wingspan consideration, and the height and the tail thing was for the Sunderland. So, uh, are we flying it now? No, I've kind of been there, done that. But what's going to happen is in the future, fantasy of flight is all about potential. And all my airplanes, they may not all fly right now, but they all have potential to re be rebuilt, to fly at some point, but not just to fly them because Kermit wants to go fly it. And everybody gets to read in an airplane magazine. Kermit spent millions of dollars to see a picture in an airplane magazine of it flying. You know, no, I've been there, done that. I'm trying to create a sustainable business that will perpetuate this uh Maybe not for you to see it fly again, but maybe for your grandkid to see it fly again. Okay. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I expect it'll fly again in my lifetime. Maybe, maybe not, but you know, but the potential is going to be there and I'm trying to lay that foundation now. So, you know, I think we all tend to live in a society that we want everything right now. We just keep popping popcorn in our deal. And, you know, saying things that really have value and meaning take time to bring into this reality. And that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, of course. And, and um, you know, it's just wonderful to see this footage here of, of it being cared for so lovingly. And, and um, you know, the fact that it's indoors means it's, you know, it, it's it's um, it's life is guaranteed. Um, yeah. Well, one of the things that I really enjoy watching Kermit is is the Kermie cams, um, which, which is you keeping us up to date and engaged and informed on on the latest projects and the progress you have with projects and there was one thing that really struck me uh, and there's, there's two reasons for it um one um is your um this very small world of aviation collectors and restorers around around the world that you know you you're obviously looking for your next projects and you're uh, you're, you're keen to share information um with with your friends um but also your decision process you know what's your next project and why and i saw the yap 9 that really struck me one because it's from the uk uh and two because i've got a soft spot for russian airplanes so i'm gonna i'm taking dealer's choice here and, and i'm gonna just focus on the russian stuff you've got and um, okay. wh where are you at with the yap 9 and, and for the viewers that don't understand what well, what's the story there 
Uh, the Yak Nine I saw a long time ago, and I got to uh, I got to mention, you know, I've got connections to a lot of Brit guys. Tony Bianchi was an aerobatic pilot on the on the on the UK team, and I would have met him early on. Of course, his dad, Doug Bianchi, was on. You know, Tony had and Tony Tony's business uh, uh, personal plane services was instrumental in helping me get the Sunderland up and running and back. The Mosquito rebuilt the Spitfire. Uh, a couple other things, and they had. I saw that Yak Nine project uh, a number of years prior, and it looked like a pretty cool display airplane. They'd gotten it out, you know, uh, of the East Block somewhere, and uh, and but at the time, it just it didn't feel right. And uh, I think they had done some work on it, maybe over in Hungary or something like that, and the deal kind of went south, and and it went, went anyway. The person finally basically threw their hands up and Tony called me one day and he said, and they shot me a price that I couldn't pass up. So it's over here. It's a project. Uh, you know, um, uh, I'm talking Russian why I've got the I-16, the little Polycarpov. I've got three uh, TU-2s that are really, really good projects. Uh, what else have I got? The PO-2, the little uh, Podoa, uh, Night Witch Airplane. I might be missing something, but you'll have to. Uh... Yeah, the, the the Night Witch's story is it, oh, it's it's incredible, isn't it? You know, uh, the things you don't read about or see on the Discovery Channel. Well, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, Douglas Botter prior there, so this is the Polycarpoff. Uh, I purchased it out of the Midland Museum where the CAF uh, was out there in Texas, and uh, we got it back here about a year ago and put it on display, but. Uh, the uh, uh, what were we just talking about? Uh, the, the night witches and the night uh, witches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's funny that you met the, the night witches and uh, Douglas Botter. Um, I've actually got uh, two experiences that are being designed into Act Three, and in the case of the Douglas Botter one, ties in totally with airability, and it's basically how many times in life. Do we accept the limitations that others place upon us? And Douglas Botter's story was picked specifically to express that. So in Act 3, you're going to come up to a thing that basically, it's not going to say this is the Spitfire experience, okay? You might see a Spitfire sitting outside the entrance, okay, in the hangar. But, you're, but it's going to say, how many times in life do we accept the limitations that others place upon us? You're going to go in there. You're going to hear a little bit of a pre-show of the Spitfire Botter story, blah, 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 losing his legs. At some point, you're going to go sit in a Spitfire cockpit. We're going to build them. They're going to be like you're in the real airplane. It's not going to be the whole airplane, but it's going to be – you're going to be sitting in a Spitfire cockpit, okay? Dimly – it's going to be black out here, dimly lit here smells and everything, you're going to sit there and you're going to listen to Doug's story. You're going to put yourself in his shoes. And, and so the, the future way that we deliver things is, is three parts. And the first thing is a theme common to the human experience, accepting limitations of other places upon us. You deliver it through the most profound way to plant seeds of change that's ever been creative, entertainment, because we're open and receptive. And then you deliver it in the most profound way to learn and grow that's ever been created, not through teaching, not through preaching, not through clubbing your neighbor over the head saying this is the way it's going to be. It's through your own self-discovery. 
It's by lighting that spark within. And when you self-discover it for yourself, you own that experience. It's your experience. It's got sticky value. It's memorable. And you're the only one that knows it when you leave fantasy of flight. And so the Douglas Botter story is that particular one. The Night Witch one, which will be the same thing. You're going to get in a PO2 cockpit, similar thing. And what's going to happen is that's basically what potential is lying around you that you're not seeing, that you're not utilizing. Look what those Russian women did. The Russians were so desperate. They, the, they were getting their butts whipped. They were throwing anything and everything they could. And, you know, yeah, we had Rosie the Riveters over here banging rivets. But these freaking women, they had a whole squadron of officers, mechanics, pilots, and they would hand chuck bombs on the enemy at night, you know, hoping not as a, not as a, a tactical means to try and blow them up, but from a strategic point of view so they wouldn't sleep, not knowing. So the next day, their fathers, their brothers, and their sons would have a better chance of surviving. Mm. And so, you know, so part of that can be where, you know, people, I mean, look around. What potential are we not using? And the Russians saw the potential in the women, and they did. And sometimes in the times of crisis, we pull out things that we don't normally utilize. So what are we not only seeing without us, but what aren't we seeing within us as well? Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I, uh, from what I can hear and understand, you know, I think you're going to take us on a journey of discovery of ourselves, um, you know, in Act 3, as you put it, and, uh, you know, really quite interesting. And, and um, yeah, I, I like the idea of using using the tool of aviation to do it. Um, I, I, uh, I want to turn to a couple of uh, other aircraft here. Um, and um, uh, the GBZ, so that, you know, I mean, if, if ever you've got to wake up after a full night's sleep, that's the day, right, when you're going to get into that aircraft. Um, I, I, I've seen the footage. What a machine. I mean, just the biggest possible engine, the smallest fuselage, go as fast as you can, the golden era of air racing. To tell us a story about, about the GBZ, Kermit. Um, it was built locally down here by Kevin Kimmel, who's actually doing my Lockheed Vega project right now currently. And uh, uh, Delmar Benjamin, who, you know, flew the air show in the R2, which I also now own. Uh, Delmar uh, test flew it. I, I can't remember. He either put 12 hours on it or he flew it 12 flights or something, you know. And then it was uh, on loan here for a while. And after a while, you know, Kevin and I cut a deal. And, and it was interesting because I was following the energies, not realizing as you see on the cover of the book that you just showed, it's my main character in my little airplane character books, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so that's GBZ. And uh, and so I flew the airplane twice, and uh, and it was at the time that uh, uh, I when, once I bought it, I started to do um, – uh, some research on it because I was coming up with a video for it, you know, of talking about the airplane and stuff. And I saw that crash of Lowell Bales yeah. in the airplane where they had, had uh, you know, put a bigger engine in it. They were trying to go faster and it was really bumpy or whatever. And the wing comes off and unfortunately, you know, he gets killed. And I'm like, oh my God, I said, that's a, that's flutter. That's Elon flutter. And that's why the wing left because the wing just leaves and the airplane goes in. And I lost a friend. Uh, actually two friends in aerobatics from Flutter. I've had Flutter both on the special and the solution. Uh, 
and, you know, and when my friend got killed in an airplane that we had built in my shop, it was a monoplane, like a Stevens Acro type airplane. Um, and this airplane is, if you fly, if you fly pit special, this airplane's not an issue. You know, it's not an issue. What you got to realize, it was a dangerous airplane back then because they were flying really easy airplanes. Okay. Yeah. But this airplane was a hot little airplane. And for the normal pilots of the day, they and they were flying off of grass runways and you know and it was uh they were just they were pushing their boundaries from a pilot skill perception but uh but my my friend got killed i was out of town at the time i heard the accident uh, report there was a guy that was out everglades where he was practicing watching him for a little bit he was out shooting his gun and he had earphones on and he watched him a little bit he went back to shooting his gun out you know as far west as you could go on the roads and all of a sudden he hears this <laughs> And he looks up, and the airplane's coming down. All this stuff's fluttering down. The airplane goes straight in, and I'm and I'm going. That's aileron flutter. Well, nobody's going to do anything about it. So I asked Curtis Pitts, and Curtis introduced me to a guy up in uh, 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 up in uh, Atlanta, who was one of the three guys that developed the flutter science for the Americans and did all the flutter tests on all the World War II airplanes. He came down. And, and he, other than expenses, he didn't charge me anything because he saw what we were doing. And we found out there was a flutter problem on the airplane. It was the same. Leo Laudenschlager had the problem. He'd flown for seven years and he was lucky. Okay. And, and so then I quit flying this airplane. And I learned later that Delmar had been lucky. He flew eight years in air shows. This airplane and the R2 both have a problem above 240 miles an hour. And the conditions have to be just right. And once it goes, it's gone. And in a yeah. monoplane like this, you don't have the redundancy of a biplane. Uh, I had aileron flutter in the weak solution. And I live to tell about it. I had horizontal tail flutter in the week special. And that was, I was the first one to put the braces on the leading edge. They'd lost a couple of tails off of the uh, Pitts S2As. And uh, Delmar told me something landing here. He said, he learned the hard way. He said, never go below a hundred miles an hour unless the wheels are on the ground. <laughs> so it's not a three pointable airplane. And, uh, you know, he just said, you know, you just, just respect the airplane. He's, he's still got a big scrape on uh, the underside of one of the wingtips of the R2 as a reminder, you know, to uh, uh, to keep the speed up. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, <clears throat> well, to, well. Let, let's turn to you. Um, I don't mean to uh, give the, the GBZ a bad press, but let's turn to some dependable aircraft, some thoroughbreds, which, um, uh, of course, is the P51. Um, you know, it, it's it's just an iconic machine. Um, and uh, if, if ever there's an aircraft that, you know, really helped us win the war, uh, it's got to be that aircraft. And, and of course, um, you have the P-51C and the D. And are you rebuilding the A model? Or yeah, you, yeah. The, a, the A model is out in Salinas, California. And right. uh, it, it's coming along. And it's going to be interesting, too. I want to do something a little bit different. Everybody tries to come up with a different paint job or something. Mine's going to be, I believe, the first one with... Uh, four 20 millimeter cannons. Oh, nice, very nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, of course, the 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 C model, I believe, um, uh, was the mount of the Tuskegee Airmen, and, and we we actually we actually in this country in the UK have a D model uh, owned by Peter Teichman, who has his aircraft uh, painted up in the Tuskegee colours. And I was um, I I was really entertained, uh, Kemet, to watch the video of a reunion that you hosted at 
fantasy of flight some years ago for the Tuskegee Airmen and you described how you took five of the guys flying and and um, how they recited their stories and I did, what are your memories of that day and 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 you know how uh, how it really kind of connected you to the history of the machine well we used to do uh, we used to have Tuskegee reunions for Black History Month but I think my memory is better than yours because the one you saw was a P40 reunion of the AVG Flying wow. Tigers and it was, I flew them in the P40 so I don't have the capability in the C model to take somebody because it's got the original fuel tank in the back there. But uh, yeah, the Tuskegee guys, and, and I chose Lee Archer because there was a, a great story behind it and uh, he was still alive. Uh, there's a video of me on my YouTube channel. He was out there when I test flew the airplane. We became good friends. He was a, a great, uh, great guy. Came to Fantasy Flight a number of times. Of course, most of these guys are all since gone now. And, uh, and, and I, I painted mine, and to my knowledge, I was the first person to actually fly an airplane that had the Tuskegee colors on it. At the time, the CAF was doing their uh, airplane, and they, they did it to generically honor, theirs is called Tuskegee Airmen, which is great. I think we've kind of covered all the bases. So I took yeah. the top scoring pilot with four kills, and they, they did the whole group. And... Uh, you know, I've had a chance to to meet some great people. I just recently did a, a quick little thing with, uh, uh, um, oh my God, George. Uh, he was just here the other day uh, do, doing something, and I was on my Facebook page. And uh, you know, it's it they have a great story, and at some point, I I intend to utilize their story in a way to deliver something common to the human experience at Fantasy of Flight. Because at some level, you know, uh, you know, we're all, whether it's a bully or, you know, at some level we're all, uh, you know, guilty of, uh, you know, demeaning other people or whatever. Theirs was at a very, very high level. And, you know, I think we've come a long way uh, to change those things. And, uh, Anyway, that's me flying the C model taking off gear coming up. <laughs> yeah, anyway, that, yeah. And this C model one here, I think I've got probably pushing 15 million views on my three part series of this. So it's been very, very popular. Yeah, no, I, I probably count for a million of those. <laughs> and, and it's, um, it, you know, it is a beautiful machine, isn't it? And, and um, uh, well, you know, when you, when you strapped yourself in, to the to the P fifty one Kemet for that first solo, if you can remember, I'm sure you do. What what did it feel like? I mean, you know, it's it's such a privilege. Well, you know, I mean, I had plenty of time in the D model, so th th they fly very similar. The thing in the C model is, you know, you're closed in a little bit more, and you know, you can't move your head around as much. But they fly basically the same. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, I had an emergency on the first takeoff. And, uh, you know, and I had to land, I mean, I literally just went around the pattern. That's funny. My first, my first flight in the P-51D, I had four emergencies as well. My, you know, every flight, every first flight I do in a Mustang is only two minutes. There's something going wrong here. Hopefully the third time will be the charm with the A model. But, uh, but, uh, you know, you just, you, you got to do whatever you can do. If you watch the, 
video of the test flight. I talk through it, you know, of course, post in the studio. But, you know, I'm looking for speed. You know, what happens if the engine quits here? What happens if this happens? What do I do? Blah, blah, blah. And sure enough, I took off and the freaking temp was going up to the red line. So I popped the emergency deal. You can actually drop the, the doghouse, uh, uh, the little scoop down there, uh, an additional four inches and I immediately landed and we went back and, you know, made some adjustments and I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, something would needed to be adjusted. Went up, did another flight and then everything was fine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, well, one question that's um, uh, been on my lips as I've, as I've um, sort of followed your journey in, in collecting aircraft, Kermit, is I would say the majority of us fly a handful of aircraft at most, um, for you, you're flying a lot of different types of aircraft, um, you know, twins, singles, tailwheels, um, radials, rotaries, you name it. Um, how do you, um, uh, what's the word? How do you avoid complacency? How do you try to maintain some kind of standard in things like checklists, in things like emergencies? You know, I mean, do you have a, uh, of the Kermit way of doing things just to keep yourself safe. Obviously, you read the book the night before, but, you know, how, how do you kind of cope with the varying types from a handling perspective as well, you know, muscle memory? You know, you get into something like a Mustang and then the next day you fly, you know, a twin-engine nose-wheel bomber. I, when I used to do uh, uh, members' days at the Weeks Air Museum, I used to fly eight different airplanes. I'd go from a Grumman Duck to a Curtis Jenny to a P-51 to a mosquito to a standard j1 to uh you know whatever i mean i, I a t6 i'd fly like eight different airplanes um and it was interesting when we had our 15 year anniversary uh it was the only it was the most airplanes i ever had flying at one time uh, over the three-day weekend i flew five different airplanes on each day so i flew 15 wow. different airplanes but what happens is is an example the first thing you have to respect what you're going to do throw ego out the door. Okay. Respect what, what, what you're going to do. And so I literally, I was flying competition aerobatics. I had already, I'd flew my uh, first world aerobatic championship and I'm flying blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden I'm thinking one day I want to own a P-51. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to fly a P-51, I want to learn the way the guys did in World War II. I had not flown a retractable landing gear airplane. I went out to, and I bought an AT6 from Mark Clark, courtesy airplanes up in Rockford, Illinois. And uh, because I wanted to learn the way they did, I knew what my limitations were. And it wasn't about my ego. I wanted to be safe and I respected the airplane. I knew what I could do all in the week special, but I didn't know what a T6 could do. And I wanted to have that foundation to fly the Mustang. And so I went up there, Mark gave me, uh, jumped in the back seat. I went and I did three takeoffs and landings with him. He declared me, uh, uh, checked out in the airplane. And I brought a friend with me uh, that I brought in the back. And it was like a February. We had to chip the ice off the hangar door to get the hangar door open when we left. And there was little snow flurries leaving Rockford, Illinois, heading south in the cold weather. And I brought my friend along specifically with a stick that if I forgot to put the landing gear down to poke me in the head, <laughs> okay? And uh, 
you know, within six months, I, I had flown an aerobatic contest. I'd given my friends rides. I flew around the country. And, uh, you know, and a, another friend of mine on the aerobatic friend on the airfield had bought a Mustang, but it was about four months away before he was going to get it. And all of a sudden, Mark Clark calls me up one day, says, hey, Carmen, I got this Mustang for sale, blah, blah, blah. And six months after I bought the T6, I was the proud owner of a P-51. And I, uh, I rode in the back uh, and I, I knew what it felt like when the landing gear locked. I, I, you know, the, the speeds were completely different than the T6. And I rode in the back. It was in Pennsylvania. We, it was scheduled for an air show in Canada. We flew down and he got out at the Sebring Airport after about, you know, three legs of me riding in the back. And I'd read the manual and I, now I knew all the smells and the whistles and all that. I jumped in on my first flight. I had four freaking emergencies. I took off, and unbeknownst to me, the radiator wasn't as nice as it should have been. And later, we had to, back then, they used to rod the radiators. So you had to clean the gunk out of them. Now, we just put a new radiator in or we put a new core in. But back yeah. then, things were not, we overhaul engines different these days, too. And they cost yeah. more. But basically, I took off and I lost, uh, you know, the, the it's going up in the red line. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I power back. I immediately go to cruise. I slow down. You know, I dropped the the door, which I, you know, dropped on the C model as well. That was my first emergency, blah, blah, blah. Then I put a little bit of flaps down. And we had two drop tanks, 55-gallon drop tanks. And we picked up free air show fuel at the air show in Canada. But only one of them worked. So now I'm sitting there, I got one drop tank that's empty and I got one that's full. And I'm thinking to myself, do I drop the tank, the tanks? Okay, because I'm gonna have to belly this in because now I've got I've got a gear warning light that's telling me my gear's not down. I got a red light showing me the gear's not down. And so, and then I couldn't get the rest of the flaps down for some reason. So I've got minimum flap, I got a red warning light. I've got the gear open there and my engine's overheating as I'm turning in on my first flight a minute, 90 seconds into my take after my takeoff. I'm thinking to myself, keep the speed up because everybody told me if you add the throttle and you're slow, it'll flip over and you'll crash. So I come in, I land. It turned out the micro switch needed to be adjusted on the gear deal. The guy said, well, yeah, the radiator, if you take off. And the problem was it was 110 degrees on the ramp. We had just landed. The airplane was already hot. It was hotter when I got out there. And I didn't know that if I waited a little bit and got out there quickly and took off and let it cruise, the temp would drop. Well, it did. And, you know, so I flew around for about 15 minutes, jumped in the back, threw him out in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, I went down to Tamiami, threw my bags out, showed everybody the airplane, and I started giving rides. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you just got to drink from the fire hose when it when it presents itself. You know, you uh, yeah, oh, that, that's that's really really interesting story. And um, you know, I I uh, I'm conscious of the time, Kermit. Um, we we could go through each one of your airplanes. Uh, uh, bit by bit, but I'm not going to put you through that pain. Um, but one thing. Um, that, that I find fascinating um, is a lot of us read books, go to air shows. We uh, we see from the outside in the uh, the the world of historic and classic aviation. But I guess the um, the unique perspective you have is because you've flown these aircraft and many of them, you've you probably got that connection. You probably got a really uh, quite real uh, awareness and understanding of. Um, of, of what it must have been like to operate these weapons of war, essentially, at least the majority of the aircraft. Yeah, 
infection yeah. were designed for a purpose. And to elaborate on what you just said, you know, you see it from the outside in. And yes, I've had the opportunity to see it from the inside out. But I try and share that experience with my YouTube videos and my Kermie cans. Stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's loud and clear. I mean, it's um, it's very rare that you see <clears throat> collections of, uh, of this type um, made available to see in, in all the detail. You know, I mean, um, I think, you know, the UK aviation fraternity uh, and the aviation scene is is up there. You know, I think the UK and the US, you know, and, and one or two other countries, Australia is a big one. Um, you know, there's a huge amount of interest in, in classic and vintage aviation. And and for you to be able to share that with us, particularly in times like these, is, is really great. And, uh, you know, I know it won't be long before we can actually get on a real airplane and fly to another country. Um, but, um, you know, I, I just wanted to say, from my perspective, uh, I think this has been absolutely fascinating. It's been um, great to get an insight into uh, where Fantasy of Flight came from and why, but also where it's going. And I think that's the really important thing is, is for people to understand that, uh, you know, this is really going to be an impressive opportunity to, to, to see where you're taking it in Act 3. Um, and Kermit, I know that it's a, it's a Saturday afternoon out there for you now, so we won't keep you for too much longer. But um, I did want to just say to all the viewers out there that um, the experience I had in Florida was absolutely awesome. I remember reading uh, the bedtime stories with the book I had. So uh, go on to Kermit's YouTube channel, um, you know, buy the book uh, and, uh, and just stay connected because if you get the chance to go to Florida, you won't be disappointed. Uh, that's for sure, based on my experience. So, so Kermit, is there anything you wanted to uh, share with us, share with the viewers? Uh, I know we were going to talk a bit about airability. Um, yeah, I think I think what you guys are doing is very similar uh, kind of a mission with Fantasy of Flight. But I want to point out that, um, you know, you say that you're working with people with disabilities. You have to understand everyone, every person on this planet is limited. We all are disabled. We find ourselves in this very limited human life form in three-dimensional reality. There's so much more beyond this planet and beyond this dimension. And, and what I've discovered with is in these inner explorations is what everything truly is, is infinite potential. But within infinite potential, there's no experience, only the potential thereof, thereof. And so what happens was when infinite potential manifests in this reality of light, which is the paint with which we paint this experience, and the paintbrush with which we paint this with is consciousness or awareness. And so basically what happens is at some point we ask ourselves as infinite potential, what am I? And the only way infinite potential can answer that question is to create an experience, you, me, anything and everything that's manifest, okay? And at some point, it's seeing itself from its own limited perspective. And at some point on its journey, it has the ability to imagine beyond what it perceives itself to be. And it's that mm -hmm. journey of transcendence of what all of all reality is about. So when you say you're working with disabled people, yes, there might be people that can't jump in an airplane or they're in a wheelchair or something. They're, that's not who they are. 
That's just how that spirit form of them happens to be experiencing an experience right now. And so to me, everybody's the same. Everybody's limited. And I would hope that once we all realize that each and every one of us is limited and we're on our journey trying to go beyond ourselves, then hopefully we can be able to appreciate that everyone else is on their journey. And instead of trying to climb over and get on top of everybody, all of a sudden we embrace everybody like what you're trying to do. And, and we support each other on this journey of self-discovery and self-transcendence. Well, that's that's just a, a wonderful way to end, Kermit, and I couldn't agree with you more. And and isn't it just strange that uh, if you look at the word disability, and you remove the first three letters, you know that that's that's what we can all achieve. And and um, of course we have our our limitations. Um, and uh, I I think uh, certainly organisations like Airability and and uh, Fantasy of Flight, you know, aim to yeah allow us to overcome those. Those limitations, and and um, I I look forward to a um, you know a, a long happy friendship with you, um, Kermit, and and your organisation. I know that uh, you know we stand firm in our beliefs, and and uh, and I think it'll be uh, not too long before we get to meet. And of course, all of you viewers out there as well, you know, um, when you can travel, head to Florida. You know where Kermit is. Um, but Kermit, I just wanted to say a huge thank you for giving your time, sharing your thoughts, being so honest. And open and, and giving us a bit of an insight into um you know a passion we all share which, which is of course aviation and, and flying so so on that kermit i'm going to say a goodbye and thank you very much i appreciate it and i uh, look forward to getting over to the uk it's been a long time since i had a really good scone well <laughs> and is it jam first or cream first that's that's the question <laughs> but we'll, we'll see you we'll see you at blackbush that's for sure good deal cheers Okay, well there you go. What a what a great guy. What a fascinating insight there in, into uh, what's going on in in Polk City in Florida. So uh, he won't be long before we can get out there and see for ourselves the the plans and the ambitions that Kermit has. Um, I've been watching these uh, these YouTube videos for quite a few days just to get uh, really an understanding and an awareness of of uh, the the collection in its entirety from an aviation perspective. There's nothing that rivals uh, Kermit's collection, and uh, it really it really is quite amazing to see everything that uh, Kermit shares on YouTube. And so, so do take a look. Um, but for now, uh, that concludes uh, today's Inspirability Talk. I hope you've enjoyed it. You can download these now on, uh, on the podcast app um, on your device. Uh, and, of course, also access it via the Airability YouTube channel and Facebook, too. Um, we've got some really interesting talks coming up. Uh, we've got... Uh, uh, the um, uh, Tim Orchard, a former Concorde captain, is going to be sharing with us his his memories of uh, flying uh, Concorde back in the uh, the 1980s and 1990s, and and quite a few more uh, talks coming up. So um, we're not done yet. We're, we've still got plenty to give. Don't uh, don't forget, you can still donate uh, to Airability a little or as much as you as you wish to keep this amazing organisation going. But uh, I'll leave you to your Saturday evenings now. Uh, and um, we'll talk to you again very soon. Bye-bye.